Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I am your host with the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. I am honored to be in dialogue today with Rabbi Yonatan Neriel. He is the author of Eco Bible, Volume 1, an ecological commentary on Genesis and Exodus, published in Jerusalem by the Interface Center for Sustainable Development in 2020. Yonatan is the founder and executive director of the Interface Center for Sustainable Development. Yonatan, thank you for being with us today. I'm delighted to be in dialogue with you. I'm happy to be in dialogue with you as well. Thank you for having me. Um, I'll also just mention that, I don't know if you want to mention this yourself, but we published Eco Bible Volume 2, an ecological commentary on Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in 2021. Wonderful. Um, thank you for sharing that. And to our listeners, we would absolutely um, encourage you to have a look at volume two and to apply the insights shared today, not only to volume one under discussion, but also to volume two. Uh, to begin, uh, please tell us about yourself. Uh, where did you grow up? And were there any formative events in your life that inspired your interest in ecology? Yes. So I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area on an acre of land with an organic garden that I garden with my mother. I grew up with an old growth oak. I grew up with on an I grew up with an old growth oak tree that the Native Americans harvested the acorns from in the late 19th century and also the early 20th century, a few generations before my family moved there. I also grew up within a big orchard uh, where I would uh, climb the fruit trees and harvest plums and peaches and apples and apricots. I then uh, studied environmental issues in college. Um, I also went to a Jewish summer camp near Yosemite where I first learned about the connection between Judaism and ecology. And in college, I did research on renewable energy in Mexico. Uh, in college, I did research on renewable energy in India and genetically modified corn in Mexico. And also did a master's degree. Uh, and then I came to Israel and I studied in uh, yeshivot and Jewish uh, seminaries uh, over the course of about seven years. Where, um, and I was uh, ordained in 2010. Um, at, at that point, I founded the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development, 
which is working to reveal the connection between religion and ecology and mobilize people to act. So that's a little bit about me. What inspired you to write this book and the sequel? What inspired you to write an ecological commentary on the Bible? Great question. Well, I because I grew up with you know a good deal of environmental background from different influences. Um, when I came to study uh, Bible and Talmud in Jewish seminary, I, I sort of saw it through an environmental lens, and I was able to see that many of the teachings that I was learning, uh, even though if they didn't use you know modern environmental terminology and you know modern issues like climate change and biodiversity loss, um, but but because these these rabbis and these texts were written in pre-modern and pre-industrial societies where, where the rabbis were living close to the land and many of them themselves were farmers or shepherds, uh, I came to see the deep environmental linkages. So I took notes during my seven years of studies and uh, me and others typed up those notes and, and those sort of formed the, the skeleton or the backbone of, uh, of this ecological commentary, uh, which is on 400 verses in the five books of Moses or in the Pentateuch. How does your book challenge the conventional ways that we as humans relate to the non-human world, non-human life, and non-human entities? Well, it's interesting because many people read the Bible from a very anthropocentric viewpoint, meaning a very human-centered viewpoint. Uh, and many people understand, uh, you know, when it says in Genesis chapter one, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth uh, and conquer it and dominate the animals and fish and the birds. Uh, they understand that as sort of giving people a carte blanche to run roughshod over the earth. Um, but in, in the rabbinic understanding, uh, you know, human beings are... Where God created us, God created all the other creatures. According to one understanding, uh, God created us last to teach us humility. You know, even though we might have a brain that is three times as large as our nearest primate cousin, uh, but actually we don't have the largest brain of any animal in the world. The sperm whale has a bigger brain than us, uh, and so we have a to be. We have to be humble. Um, and we have to care for other creatures. At the end of the day, these are all God's creatures, uh, 8 million species, 10 million species. And, uh, and so therefore we have an obligation to, to treat them with respect, to care for them and to ensure their survival, just like we're trying to ensure our own survival. What's unique about a Jewish perspective on environmentalism as opposed to other religious perspectives on environmentalism? For example, how is a Jewish perspective different from a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Christian perspective on environmentalism or different from prevailing attitudes in Europe and North America today regarding environmentalism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology and the Yale uh, Divinity School have uh, put out many uh, open online courses on religion and ecology. So, so people are taking now you know, semester-long courses on Buddhism and ecology, Islam and ecology, etc. Uh, so this question really could be fleshed out over the course of many years of study. Uh, but in short, 
I, the way I understand a Jewish environmental approach, uh, you know, first of all, it's a theocentric approach, meaning God is at the center, uh, that God created us. We're, you know, the one living God is sustaining us and we're, we don't have license to destroy creation. There's a, a Jewish teaching, a Midrash, that says that God showed Adam all the trees of the Garden of Eden and said to him, see how praiseworthy and beautiful are my works. Everything that I created, I created for you. Be careful not to destroy or despoil my creation, because if you do, there will be no one after you to repair it. And so based on this understanding, you know, we're supposed to be stewards. We're supposed to protect God's creation. Um, and so, you know, this, this would differ from a, from an, uh, a religion like Buddhism that's, that's you know, non-deist, meaning uh, doesn't necessarily doesn't believe in God um uh you know or Taoism um that so that would be a distinction between Judaism and and, and such you know, Eastern religions in terms of distinguishing a, a Jewish environmental approach from from say Muslim or, or Christian environmental ethics um and that's a more complicated question especially because uh, Judaism and Islam and Christianity have a lot in common um having grown out of the same area of you know Israel and Saudi Arabia um, but I would say that, you know, one thing that distinguishes Eco Bible, for example, this, this, this Jewish ecological commentary that, that I co-authored is that we're looking at 400 verses and we're drawing on rabbinic commentary over millennia. Um, so Judaism is just an older religion than, uh, Christianity or Islam. You know, obviously it goes back to Abraham, um, about, uh, 3,500 years ago. And, and so the rabbinic commentators that, that were commenting is say 2000 years ago, um, that was, uh, you know, definitely before the beginning of Islam, um, but also right at the very beginning of Christianity. What kinds of ecological crises is contemporary Israel facing today? How can Jewish teachings respond? Yeah, so Israel's facing a number of, of ecological challenges. I was actually recently uh, on the coast with my wife and, and two children, and we were swimming in the Mediterranean on the Israeli coast, and we encountered many jellyfish, mm. actually. Uh, yes, I read about this in the jellyfish. news. Uh, on, on, luckily, I touched the jellyfish on its head and not on its tentacles. Um, but other people were not so lucky. And so one challenge is... is actually relates to climate change and invasive species, uh, the jellyfish uh, that the, these ones that, that sting and are toxic uh, to people actually originated in the Indian Ocean and they didn't exist in the Mediterranean until the Egyptians built the Suez Canal about 150 years ago. And seven years ago, the Egyptians doubled the size of the Suez Canal by adding another lane. So the number of invasive species now in the Mediterranean has reached about 400, including many jellyfish species. Uh, jellyfish, actually, it's a, another term would be sea jellies because uh, it refers to a range of species. Um, and so they're, they're actually coming, they're an invasive species um, and they're uh, in, enjoying the warm waters, which are warmer because of climate change. Um, and as well as the, the you know, lack of, a number of the predators that used to eat jellyfish like tuna uh, because people have overfished them. So, so there, there's a whole conversation we can have about marine biology and, and environmental issues relating to the Mediterranean. 
Um, but there's also land issues in terms of, uh, of an oil spill that took place uh, in recent years in the south of Israel. Um, there's now gas extraction that's taking place right off the Israeli coast um, and urbanization. Um, about 80% of Israel's pop population lives in cities. Uh, and so there's a lot of issues with um, the decline of wildlife and um, threatened and endangered species, um, as well as how climate change is affecting people here and, and species with uh, hotter weather, um, more extreme weather events. Those are, those are a few of the issues that, that we're facing here. Can you share some religious texts in Judaism that impacted your personal worldview regarding Judaism and ecology? So one of them, um, you know, goes back to the, the teaching I was saying earlier about Genesis chapter one, verse 28, about be fruitful, and multiply and fill the earth and conquer it, which, you know, has really been misunderstood um, in the Judeo-Christian tradition over millennia. Um, there's a number of rabbinic commentaries that, that say that that verse is really um, teaching us to be stewards um, because uh, in the, the verses that surround it, God says that God will make the human being in the image and likeness of God. And so one rabbinic commentary understands that only if we act in the image and likeness of God uh, do we have, um, you know, the ability to have dominion over creation. Um, but if we act in an arrogant way, then the animals will rule over us, that God will take us down. Uh, and we see that with the coronavirus, uh, how this you know, microscopic virus that we can't even see is, is really dominating human society. Um, also, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 um, is sort of a, a bookend to the, the first chapter of Genesis. Genesis 2.15 says that, that God placed the human being in the Garden of Eden to serve it and conserve it. As Rabbi Jonathan Sachs translates it in Hebrew, it's Ovda Shomra. And, and that really means, you know, a lot of the rabbis understand it to mean it's not just the Garden of Eden, but uh, Rabbi Amorai asked, where's the Garden of Eden? And he answered, it is on earth. So, you know, we need to treat this land like the Garden of Eden. Um, there was a, an environmental NGO did a tour for Christian pastors in Kentucky of open pit coal mining in Kentucky. And, and they saw it and, and they actually, they saw it uh, with an aerial tour and they, they had a religious experience to see what we're doing to God's creation. Uh, you know, and sometimes in the name of religion, uh, it definitely makes us question about, you know, are we understanding these texts correctly? Speaking of coronavirus, how does your book illuminate our understanding of the causes and consequences of COVID-19? So we, we touched on that a little bit. You know, it's 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 pretty accepted um, in the scientific community that the coronavirus emerged from an animal market in Wuhan in late 2019. Um, it, it likely uh, was in a bat, and then the the virus transferred from a bat to an intermediate animal like a pangolin, which is a a spiny uh, you know creature um, that was in the animal market. Um, and then from there to a person. So it's called a zoonotic disease that it transfers um, by means of an animal to people. And today we have 80 billion animals in factory farms and in human captivity. And, and it's not a coincidence that this virus arose. It's actually, we'd seen the writing on the wall for many years and there were other viruses like SARS 
of an avian bird flu and, uh, and viruses that were transferred from camels in the Middle East. So it's, you know, it's really a wake up call for us in terms of our relationship with animals. Uh, it's, it's not sustainable uh, for humanity to continue to keep 80 billion animals in captivity for meat, and dairy, and egg, and fish consumption, and shellfish consumption. So, you know, something's got to change. Um, you know, hopefully the pandemic will wake people up to, to this. Um, you know, one silver lining has been that the, the coronavirus also transferred to mink in Europe, and uh, many European countries ended up closing their mink operations. Europe was the biggest producer of mink for, war, for, for fur. Um, but because the coronavirus transferred to mink and then it could be a breeding ground for new variants. So a number of European countries like uh, Denmark and Slovakia, I believe France ended their mink operations. In what ways are biblical and rabbinic texts understandings of ecological ethics, quote unquote progressive, even in regard to today's world, and even relative to contemporary environmentalist thinking? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I believe that the ecological crisis is not just about the birds and the bees, the trees and the toads. It's about how we live as human beings, as spiritual beings in a physical reality. So the, the you know, it's been 50 years since Earth Day, and I actually just uh, went on my first trip in three years almost uh, to, Stock to Stockholm, where I attended the Stockholm Plus 50 Sustainable Development Conference. That's 50 years after that conference, the first Sustainable Development Conference. And, you know, if we look at where we are now and where we were 50 years ago, we're actually in a much deeper hole than we were 50 years ago in terms of uh, climate change biodiversity loss, acidification of the oceans. And I think it, it, we should you know, pause to think about why is it that the environmental movement has not succeeded in the past 50 years in affecting the change that it sought to, to affect? Uh, and why is it that you know, every year that the UN meets and world leaders meet to address climate change, the problem actually gets worse, emissions rise. Uh, every year, the number of animals in factory farms rises. Every year, the number of cars on the road rises. The number of you know, airplane miles traveled rises. And I think part of it has to do with the way that we understand the problem. Uh, and the operating system of humanity today, sort of the mainstream mindset, is one of consumerism, of seeking pleasure in the physical. And religion is the only institution, I believe, that can challenge consumer society. And this is where the Bible teachings come in, um, because a lot of these teachings and something we highlight in Eco Bible focus on spiritual roots. You know, well, it, it, climate change, biodiversity loss, and acidification of the oceans are symptoms of a deeper problem. The deeper problem is one of arrogance, short-term thinking, and seeking our pleasure in physicality. The spiritual solutions are humility long-term thinking and finding our pleasure in family, community, and spirituality. And, and so that's a reframing and a, a deeper approach to the problem than the current approach offers. And so in, in that way, I believe these teachings are progressive and you know, going to help us to have spiritual progress instead of just material progress. 
What are some examples of ecological and environmental consciousness in halacha? So halacha refers to Jewish law. Uh, and one, one example is bal tashchit, do not destroy or waste. So in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 19 to 20, uh, the Torah teaches that uh, it's forbidden for an Israelite soldier to cut down fruit trees in war to make a siege, to siege a city. And based on this principle, uh, based on these verses, I learned a principle called Baltashrit about not destroying anything of value to people. And one of the main areas that this applies is, I mean, it applies to every area in terms of wasting food, water, clothing, energy. Uh, but one of the key areas is in terms of food. Modern society throws out about a third of the food that's produced. And uh, most people waste a good amount of food, whether it's, uh, you know, leftovers in their fridge that they just never eat or taking too much food at a buffet or, you know, throwing a, a barbecue or, a, you know, a, a religious event and then catering it and having a lot of food left over that goes to waste. Um, and this, this principle applies to Jewish law. So it's, it's understood to be one of the 613 commandments not to destroy or waste. Um, and it's considered to be at the level of Torah law uh, that one isn't so, supposed to waste food, since the verse itself speaks about not cutting down fruit trees. And the idea of, that what's so special about fruit trees is that they produce fruit, as Rabbi Ishmael said in the Talmud. Throughout the book, throughout the book you include many suggested action items. What are some recommendations that you can share with our listeners? Are there any out-of-the-box or contrarian suggestions you might encourage our listeners to try to follow? Yeah, so, so the idea in Eco-Bible is it's not just about theology. It's not just about ecological theology. It's also about practical things we can do to try to bring the, the, the Bible teachings into practice. So one of the things, you know, people ask me, well, what are the, what are our biggest impacts? So, so one impact is plane travel. Uh, you know, I would say to try to reduce as much as possible once, once airplane travel, uh, airplanes are a very effective way of depositing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because airplanes burn jet fuel and that most of the jet fuel that's burned, uh, emits carbon that stays in the atmosphere because airplanes are in the atmosphere and, and that then, you know, that stays for a hundred years and causes climate change and global warming for 100 years. Um, the second thing that people could do uh, relates to rings, um, especially gold rings at weddings. Um, most gold in the world, most of the big gold nuggets have already been mined in the California gold rush and South African gold rush, uh, you know, 49ers, that was 1849. And so today, uh, much of the gold that's produced in the world is through a process called cyanide leach mining where uh, the miners take a huge chunk of earth, they dig that up and in an area where they know are little filings uh, of gold, but not actual nuggets. And in order to, to separate the filings from the dirt, they uh, pour a cyanide leach solution over it, which uh, then goes into the rivers and, and harms the people and animals and plants downstream. So if someone is getting married or wants to give their you know, loved one a gift, uh, go for a recycled ring. So they have recycled rings from gold and computers or, or take an heirloom ring from a, 
vintage store or from a, a relative to give at a wedding or at another event. Those are a couple of suggestions that I can make. How can Martin Buber's teachings about I-it and I-you relations apply to thinking about ecology? So Martin Buber, in his book, I-thou, spoke about uh, holy relationships, of how we are supposed to be in holy relationship with, with people and, and other beings. Uh, and that's called an I-thou relationship as opposed to an I-it relationship, which is a utilitarian relationship, you know, sort of the relationship between uh, a person and uh, a chicken wing. People say, I love chicken. Well, they don't love the chicken. What they love is the taste of the chicken. So, but uh, my, my kids were a couple of weeks ago, as I said, we were on the coast and uh, the people we were staying with have a chicken coop for chickens that, uh, lay eggs that they eat. And so that my children got to hold the chickens. Uh, so that would be more of an I-thou I relationship of actually like here is a being uh, and you know whether it's uh, a chicken or any any creature or any person um, and to relate to that to that being as, as a holy being. Uh, in in the, the first chapter of Genesis it says that God created uh, the creatures with uh, a soul uh, in Hebrews nefesh. And so other creatures have souls. So that means that we should relate to them with souls and, and treat them with respect and dignity. And, uh, and that means, you know, giving them, giving them a, a dignified lifestyle, which, which doesn't mean that they should live in a cage for their whole life or even any part of their life. Can you describe the spiritual significance of praying in nature? What are the psychological and religious benefits of so doing? Yeah, so it's it's meaningful to pray in nature, uh, to sit and meditate in nature, to pray amongst the trees. For the past two and a half years of the pandemic, the synagogue that I'm involved in here in Jerusalem Kilat Vanitfila has mostly prayed in a forest next to the synagogue building that we normally pray in. Uh, this was due to the to the COVID uh, concerns, um, but in the process, uh, I've come to appreciate, you know, being in relationship with these trees. Uh, the The Book of Psalms talks about the trees singing. It says in Hebrew, Then the trees of the field sang before God, who came to judge the land. And uh, so, the according to the Jewish teaching, the midrash, the trees sing. The trees um, they sing when we're relating to them in a holy way. And the the Baal Shem Tov said that. Uh, that, you know, he, he used to pray in nature, also Rabbi Nachman of Breslov talked about going out into nature to speak with God and to pray. And, and the Midrash, the Jewish teaching, says that every blade of grass has an angel above it telling it to grow. So, you know, to go into nature is to encounter God's creation and to really, uh, you know, to connect to other species. Uh, the Baal Shem Tov, one of the great, uh, the founder of the, the founder of the Hasidic movement, one of the great Jewish sages of the past few centuries, said that a rock is at a very high spiritual level because it's just sitting there the whole day praising God. So to 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 lie on a rock, to sit on a rock, to pray on a rock, 
uh, we can help to you know, connect to all the holy voices of creation that are rising up. How can the experience of Shabbat enhance somebody's ecological awareness? So Shabbat, or the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, is an important uh, one of the, the 613 commandments. It's and it's especially important in our times because we're living in, in times that our ancestors have been dreaming about for thousands of years. Uh, but we're living at times where things have sped up, as Pope Francis calls it in his book, Laudato Si, on care for our common home. He speaks about the rapidification of society, which I'm sure we can all relate to. That, you know, I'm 41 years old, and when I was a kid in the 1980s, uh, it was a slower life in the sense of, you know, we didn't have cell phones and we didn't have laptop computers. Uh, we didn't have an internet and things, you know, we had a landline uh, and things just sort of went more slowly uh, in terms of our life. My, my parents were adamant that we should have family dinner every night and, and we did and that was that was meaningful for me but in our times you know people might check email or whatsapp or facebook or other social media sites you know hundreds of times a day they might spend most of their day in front of a screen and so according to a traditional jewish understanding of the sabbath um you know uh traditional jews turn off their electric devices before uh, the, the sun down on Friday uh, and only will turn their devices back on after uh, three stars on Saturday night. So they'll go for at least 25 hours without uh, elect without actively using electronic devices. I, I try if, if I can to not turn back my phone or uh, laptop until Sunday morning. So, so that those 40 hours for me are like a, a you know, like a lifesaver. Um, we're, we're, we're human beings, not human doings. And so to stay, you know, connected to our digital devices 24 seven, except for when we're sleeping, um, I think can be really detrimental to human health. There's also some studies that are, that are relating to this. There's a new documentary called the social dilemma. that talks about how, how young people in particular, um, are really impacted by these new technologies and, and not for the good. Um, so, you know, and the Sabbath is also can be an ecological practice because to not drive, to not take an airplane um, and to not use actively use technology can also reduce one's carbon footprint for, for, for one day, um, but also going to help to sort of recalibrate and, and rethink, you know, what am I doing here? Um, what's most important and how do I connect to family, community and spirituality uh, as a key part of my life? How does your book suggest we apply an ethos of reducitarianism to our lives? What do you mean by reducitarianism? And can you explain both the meaning of its of this term and its relationship to ethical eating? Sure. So reducitarianism is a term that someone came up with. They have a website, reducitarianism.org. Uh, and it's based on the idea that, that many people aren't ready to go cold turkey on eating uh, meat, dairy, eggs, and, and fish, and shellfish. And so therefore, 
you know, the, the one approach would be to reduce the amount of meat or animal products that a person eats at, at each meal or each day or each week. So to take upon oneself, you know, if someone eats animal products at every meal currently, so 21 days, 21 times a week, so seven times three, then, you know, depends on the person. Take one meal a week without it or one meal a day without animal products um, or reduce eating beef because beef has a higher carbon footprint than chicken since there's the methane that cows emit. Um, that's what that's the idea behind reducitarianism, sort of a, a, a gradual approach to trying to change our lifestyle instead of, you know, sort of jumping in on a to something that may not be sustainable to make, you know, try to make changes in our lives sustainable. In light of your book's reflections, how should the state of Israel approach conservation differently than it does? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm grateful for that, you know, one of the first times in Israel's history uh, for the past year and a month, Israel has had an environment minister who's actually an environmentalist. It's one thing I've realized is that many environment ministers in the world uh, aren't actually, you know, environmentalists. They, they get the position because they're some political appointee. Uh, and, you know, this is, this is the case in the United States in the last administration, um, the case in many countries, uh, and they don't actually have a strong environmental awareness. Uh, but in the past 13 months, Israel has had a very committed uh, environmentalist, Tamar Zandberg, as its environment minister. And she's really worked to do a number of, of things to you know, promote ecological sustainability in Israel. Um, now, the fact that the coalition government collapsed a month ago means that she's going to be out of a job in about four months. Um, but she's trying to put in place some good policies that I think are, are in the right direction. Um, so one of them is to, to, to try to put an end to a oil pipeline between a lot in the south of Israel on the Red Sea uh, and Ashkelon, which is uh, north of the Gaza Strip. Um, that was a pipeline that was designed to transport oil and gas from the Gulf countries to Europe. Um, but because of the likelihood of oil spills and pollution, um, uh, she and others believe that that's not a wise policy for Israel. Um, although at the same time, Israel is moving forward with its gas extraction uh, on the Mediterranean coast and now is, is bringing that to a a facility in Egypt to liquefy it and then to send liquefied gas to Europe. Uh, you know, the war in, in, in Ukraine and, and, and the, Russia's invasion has really changed uh, a lot of factors. And, and so this, is, this has been one new development. Um, so that's, that's a bit of a reflection on your question. Uh, speaking of what you had just alluded to, in light of your book, what is your perspective on Israel's natural gas discoveries and the relationship between its energy policy and its ties with Egypt, United Arab Emirates, and other regional powers? What does your book suggest that we think about these ties? Yeah, it's interesting because the the... The Pentateuch, the Five Books of Moses, is, is a book that focuses on the Middle East. 
Abraham is born in Iraq. He moves from Iraq and travels through southeastern Turkey to Syria, uh, into Israel, and there's a famine in the land, and then he moves to Egypt, and then goes into the Sinai. Uh, according to some opinions, Moses was in Saudi Arabia for, for some, of the, some of the times that he was exiled from Egypt. Uh, and then the Israelites leave Egypt and they conquer um, parts of what's today Jordan. Um, and so, you know, part of the, the book is actually relating to different issues in, in some of these countries, like the um, like a dam project in uh, in Ethiopia and how that's going to impact the Nile River and, and Jordan being a water scarce country. Um, you know, in terms of your question about natural gas extraction, uh, because the place we were just swimming on the on the coast was right across from Israel's first natural gas rig. Uh, we were at the kibbutz of Nachsholim, and you know, I'm I, I'm I'm I believe that you know, first of all, we should we should not waste energy. We should use energy as wisely as possible and conserve as much as we can. As, as part of living simply and living humbly. Um, so that's sort of my, you know, and, and I believe that religious teachers should be promoting this message. Um, and and as opposed to thinking we just need to keep, you know, extracting more and more in order to fuel an ever growing material standard of living. Um, so, yeah, I don't think, I'm not, I don't support the oil extraction in the Mediterranean. Um, Hezbollah just sent some drones last week to apparently try to either do surveillance or blow up one of the oil rigs. So it's, it's a huge risk. Um, and we see with the, the BP oil spill in 2010 at the Macondo well in the, in the Caribbean, in the Gulf of Mexico, that, uh, you know, these oil spills have huge effects. It, that, that oil spill impacted uh, Gulf communities in Texas and Louisiana and Alabama and Mississippi for, for many years, and the effects are still being felt. So, uh, you know, a wiser approach is to use, use energy as, as sparingly and, and wisely as we can. And then, um, sorry about that. Uh, a wiser approach is to use energy as sparingly as we can. And when we do use energy for it to be produced by renewable energy, especially solar and wind power and geothermal. How can environmental education be improved in Jewish schools and Jewish religious schools? So I've been working for a number of years. Uh, a branch of my organization is called Jewish Eco Seminars, and we're engaging the Jewish community on Jewish environmental wisdom. So we've developed... Uh, infographics, Jewish environmental infographics that relate to seven different topics. Uh, we've produced and we've distributed them to some Jewish day schools in collaboration with Chazon, a Jewish environmental organization. We've also um, developed uh, resources on uh, speaking guides, source sheets, articles on a number of, of Jewish environmental topics in, in collaboration um, with Confein Sharim and Grow Torah. So, you know, there's a lot to be done to sort of change the, uh, the, the, the software, meaning the educational framework of our institutions. Um, 
because most, you know, environmental awareness and Jewish ecology isn't a focus of most Jewish educational institutions, but many young Jews care more about ecology than they do about Torah and, and Bible learning. And so therefore to meet young Jews and young people where they're at really requires that we retool our educational systems to focus on the connection between religion and ecology. What does your book teach us about the virtue of simplicity? Well, there's a verse that says, Tamim im Hashem Be wholehearted with your God. Tom is like a simpleton. And Rabbi Nachman of Breslov has a story about the simpleton and the sophisticate. To be, to be simple and to live simply, it's, it's a virtue. Uh, E.F. Schumacher wrote a book called Small is Beautiful. You know, the, as I said, the dominant view today that, that advertisers are pushing is sort of live large, you know, live it up, take that $99 flight to the Caribbean, you know, eat a, a double Big Mac, drive an SUV. Uh, and and that, that path, we're, we, we see what that path leads to. It leads to the ecological crisis that we're in. But uh, a but many of the, the Jewish sages live very simple lives. Uh, a rabbi that I've been connected to, a blessed memory, Rabbi Yorma Virgil lived in a modest apartment in the, the town of Nitivot. Um, so I believe it's important to live simply. Ari, if you can just give me a second. <clears throat> I, need a, I need to refill my water bottle. Sure, okay? go for it. Maybe you could even pause the recording as you wish. Yeah, no problem. How, how can we interpret the biblical creation story in regards to its teachings about environmentalism? Can you share with us some of your interpretations of Parashat Bereshit? Sure. So it's interesting that after God creates animals and people in the first chapter of Genesis, God says to people eat plants and then the next verse god says to animals eat plants and the torah says and it was so and that is sort of the simple understanding of why in noah's ark the animals didn't eat each other even though they were on the same deck the people were on the top deck the animals on the middle deck and the waste on the bottom deck according to the rabbinic understanding the lion lay down with the lamb because they, they were all plant eaters, all herbivores. It, it may, you know, there's, there's actually a scientific study that, that shows that some ancient crocodiles were herbivores, um, which might, you know, for those who wonder, well, that seems to clash with science. Although, as an aside, EcoBible is, is a combination of, of rabbinic commentary and environmental science. So we, we have about 1,400 footnotes. Half of them are from rabbis citing rabbinic sources and half of them are from environmental studies so so we we do you know appreciate and try to uplift environmental science um but going back to the, the, these verses at the end of the first chapter of genesis so this the message that god has to people and animals is eat plants and rabbi abraham isaac cook said that that message was not lost for all times and he wrote this in 1904 and he said there will come a time in the future when we'll return to that ideal. 
And many rabbis today, including about 150 rabbis that have signed on to a rabbinic statement on vegetarianism and veganism, believe that that time has come now. That, that because of the, the terrible suffering that animals endure due to factory farming, and because of the significant climate and environmental impacts of factory farming, the time has come to liberate the animals from the human diet and to embrace a plant-based diet. Can you share with us some of your book's interpretations of the story of Noah in regard to ecology? Can you share some thoughts on the flood and the Noah's Ark stories in regard to ecology? I would be happy to. So the Noah's Ark story is really one of the more ecological stories in the Torah. And uh, as I said, the the, the Torah itself says that God told Noah to make the, the ark out of three decks. And the, and the rabbis understand that to mean people are on the top deck, animals on the middle deck, r- refuse or excrement on the bottom deck. Now the question arises, why wouldn't Noah and his family just have thrown the, the waste or the excrement overboard? Because you know the world was going to hell in a handbasket. And what did it matter if they just threw their waste overboard? So we can learn from that that, you know, something that cruise ships could take to heart to not not pollute the the ocean. Um, And and there's also a message about composting, because one of the first things that Noah did after he left the ark is he planted a vineyard. Um, Floods usually wash away topsoil, especially a flood of this scale that wiped away all life on Earth, except for that which was on the ark. And so most of the topsoil on Earth was probably washed away by the flood. As a result, there wasn't fertile soil for agriculture after the flood. And Noah had the foresight to save the waste in the bottom of the ark so that when they made landfall, they then were able to plant uh, a vineyard and to survive. So this, is, so, so this is an example of Noah as an ecological steward. Um, he's somebody who saved all species. Um, and there's another rabbinic teaching that says that, uh, that, that Noah first sent the raven, but the raven came back to Noah and protested and said, I, there are only t- two ravens on the ark, uh, me and my mate. If I get lost at the sea, then ravens will go extinct. And the raven requested that Noah send a different bird. And so he did. He sent the dove, of which there were seven, because doves are considered a a clean species, a pure species for offerings. And then, and so Noah was a steward because he he didn't want to extinct the raven. He cared for the raven. uh, And so Noah, Noah as a steward. Another passage I'd like to ask you about is as follows. Uh, Your comment on Genesis chapter 49, verse 20. Your comment on the verse, ushers, bread shall be rich and he shall yield dainties. You write, Jacob's blessings to his sons speak of the different foods that they will grow within the different tribal lands of Israel. The tribe of Judah will settle a mountainous region ideal for growing grapes. The tribe of Zebulun will engage in fishing by the sea. The tribe of Asher will grow wheat on its flat land. Clearly, Jacob is a blessing is blessing the tribes with an optimized food and agricultural policy. With efficient trading, each tribe could produce the crops or gather the food animals most suited to his territory, to its territory. 
then the tribes would barter or sell them to one another to ensure a balanced diet at all at the lowest overall cost. The close proximity of the tribes reduced the carbon footprint of their food. What would Jacob think about modern Israel, where rice is imported from the United States, meat from Argentina, and coffee from Peru? Can you comment further on this insight? I'd be happy to. So the end of the book of Genesis, as well as the end of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, describe a regional agricultural economy in the land of Israel, in the biblical land of Israel. So when Jacob was blessing his sons before he died, he blessed many of the sons with a blessing that referenced the agricultural attributes of the land that that tribe would have. And Moses did the same thing before he died. And, and so if you look at the rabbinic commentaries on many of these blessings, so we see that, that the tribe of Judah was blessed with uh, abundant grapes and so they would produce wine, which would be traded with the other tribes. Uh, and even today, the, the Judean hills around Jerusalem are an abundant grape growing region. And there's a number of wineries here. So Asher, the tribe of Asher, was blessed with abundant olive oil. And Asher is in the Galilee region. The tribe of Yisachar, which was near the Sea of Galilee, was blessed with abundant fruits. The tribe of Zebulun was blessed with being on the shore. And apparently, you know, getting uh, fish. Uh, and in the tribe of Dan, which was sort of on the coast, probably had more wheat production. So each tribe had its own sort of agricultural strength. And, they, and there was a, a local agricultural economy or a regional agricultural economy. And I believe that these blessings that Jacob and Moses gave to the Israelite tribes can teach us something today about local food production. And it's something that uh, Rabbi Julian Sinclair wrote about, of how, you know, in our times, we live a very, you know, many people in the, the Western world in particular eat uh, a globalized diet. And here in Israel, 80% of the food calories come from outside of Israel. Um, but the war in Ukraine in particular can sort of give us pause um, before the war began on February 23rd, half of the grain, half of the wheat that was eaten in Israel was imported from Ukraine. And, 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 and in a number of countries in the world, there have been protests over the rise in food prices. Uh, in, in Sri Lanka last week, the, the, the president was actually toppled um, for many reasons, but the, the protests over food prices being one of them. So it's important to consider, you know, where does our food come from? What is its carbon footprint? And how can we be connected to local producers of food? Uh, producer, you know, as Michael Pollan said, the only integrity of our food is if we can look the farmer in the eye. And so it's possible for us to go to local farms, to meet the farmers, and to have more of a connection to the food we eat. We can even grow some of our food, even if we only have a porch. Uh, just to, to grow a little bit of our food gives us more of an appreciation for food and, and not wasting it. You read on page 164, the Torah describes Moses as a man of great humility. And this is exemplified in his pitching his own tent instead of ordering others to do so for him and sleeping in a lowly position close to the ground. Nature can truly humble people. Whether Moses slept in a tent outside the camp because he was humble 
but rather he became humble through sleeping close to nature. He certainly sets an example for humankind about how to get closer to God by spending time closer to nature. The Hebrew word to camp, lechanot, shares the same root as the word for grace, chen. We can grace a place when we camp there if we tread lightly. Can you expound upon this insight? Yes. So camping is a value that we can learn from Moses. Now, you might say, well, look, they were living in a pre-industrial, pre-modern society. And, you know, if Moses were alive today, then maybe he'd live in a mansion. Well, we don't know. We didn't know, you know, how what Moses would live today. Although, I, as I said earlier, one of one of the great sages of the past generation in Israel, Rabbi Yorma Virgil, lived in a, a very modest apartment in the, the southern city of Nativot. So, and, and he and his wife had many children and still live in a, a small apartment. So, you know, we need to think about, you know, what does it mean also to be near nature? Because when we, if we go camping, then we, we, we put ourselves on the ground. And there's a principle called grounding or earthing of where if when we put our body on the earth, we reorient our magnetic field to that of the earth, uh, which you know might seem like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Um, although many people don't do that, you know, and, and will go for days or weeks or months without actually putting their body on the earth. Um, so I would encourage us to go out into nature Wherever, wherever that may be, and to, to reconnect to the natural cycles. As we bring our dialogue to a close, I would like to ask you as a final question, what are you working on next as your current project? Do you have anything on the go now as a subsequent project after EcoBible? Well, as part of the work of the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development, I'm collaborating with Reverend Dr. Leah Shade, who's a professor at the Lexington Theological Seminary in Kentucky on a resource called Eco-Preacher 123. And it's something that she's taking verses from Eco-Bible and she's developing them into two-page preaching guides for Christian pastors and priests. You see, most clergy in the world of any religion don't frequently talk about ecological sustainability from the pulpit. It's sort of a, a non-issue. People think that religion is one thing and ecology is another thing. And most seminaries in the world don't educate about this connection between religion and ecology. So most clergy leave seminary and they don't really have much of an idea about this connection. It's sort of thought of by many people, especially more conservative people in religion, as sort of a topic for tree huggers and hippies, especially because the environmental movement emerged in the 1960s and 70s at the same time as the hippie movement and the free love movement. But part of what we're trying to do in Ego Bible is to show, no, this is grounded in ancient teachings and it, and it relies on millennia old rabbinic tradition uh, of environmental awareness. So, so with Reverend Shade, um, we're promoting for Christian pastors these preaching resources that are based uh, on the weekly readings that, that most Christian congregations do on uh, Sunday. Um, 
I don't have volume three currently in the works of Eco Bible. People sometimes ask me about that. You know, what about the book of Joshua uh, or the prophets? Um, it's been, you know, only about nine months uh, or even less, but seven months since we published volume two. Um, so we'll see what God has in store for us. But uh, our current work is on this. And we're also organizing in Jerusalem an interfaith climate conference with religious leaders in November uh, in collaboration with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So those, that's keeping me busy as well. Thank you for everything you shared with us in our dialogue today. And thank you for all the erudition and sacrifice you invested in preparing this book, researching this book, and contemplating this book and bringing it to fruition. I'm incredibly grateful, and I hope our listeners will be as well. And I remind our listeners as well that there is volume two to Eco Bible as well, which is an ecological commentary on Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, in addition to only volume one, which was talked about here. Thank you so much, Ari, and I bless us all that we should do what we can when everything is at stake so that the next generation of people and all species can inherit a livable, thriving, and spiritually aware planet. Thank you, and may God bless you. Thank you. This has been Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books Network, in dialogue with Rabbi Yonatan Neril. He is the founder and executive director of the Interface Center for Sustainable Development, and he is the author of Eco Bible by Volume 1, an ecological commentary on Genesis and Exodus published in Jerusalem by the Interface Center for Sustainable Development in 2020.